Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you on the line with us, Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, co-founder of Democracy at Work.info, the author of numerous books. His latest, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to, to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. It's also available as an e-book, uh, democracyatwork.info, rdwolf.com, and Prof Wolf with two Fs. Uh, is his Twitter handle. Professor Wolf, welcome back. There, there was this fascinating article uh, by uh, Rushir Sharma in, in the Financial Times this week pointing out that uh, there's this massive glo- level of global debt, um, uh, several hundred times GDP, in fact, as I recall, 350% of GDP, global GDP, and that the, the central banks are like afraid to raise interest rates to control inflation for fear that it'll make that debt unpayable and thus trigger a whole, you know, knock-on, domino-falling consequence of governments and companies all over the world collapsing. Uh, is this a, a, a Holocaust situation? A, you know, Holocaust is the wrong word. Uh, you know, uh, uh, what's the word? You know, end of days kind of scenario economically. Well, it certainly is a basic contradiction that this capitalist system has worked its way into. Um, Let's start with the inflation. We had gotten used to not having one, even though we were in a situation where it might have happened. So we got complacent. We got lazy. I'm using the we in the old royal sense, uh, above all the Federal Reserve. And so it flooded the economy with money. And people began to say, gee, uh, things could get very hairy if all that extra money stopped going into the stock market, where it fueled an enormous increase in uh, stock prices, thereby making the richest 10% of Americans much richer than they had been and much further from the average American. Um, We've gotten to the point now where the money is beginning to hesitate about going into the stock market to boost those prices even higher and starting to look for other things to be spent on. And so we get the long-delayed inflation now running 6 to 7% in the United States uh, and threatening to go further. And here comes the contradiction. Over the last 20 years, when interest rates were kept very, very low by historical standards, and in many cases uh, going below zero, negative, every bank, 
every government, every corporation, virtually without exception, borrowed more money than they had ever borrowed before. So the level of debt is enormous. And of course, the debt you have to pay back, you know, a portion of whatever it is you owe as a company, as an individual, uh, as a government, you have to pay back literally every week or every month. And when you do, you typically do what we call roll over the debt. In other words, you pay back, and the way you do it is by borrowing the same amount again. But here comes the problem. If, in order to slow down an inflation, the Federal Reserve or any central bank pulls money out of the system, it drives interest rates up. And when you re-borrow to replace the money you have to pay back, you're going to have to pay a higher interest than you were used to. And that's where the Financial Times article comes in. It points out that for governments, for corporations and for households. If interest rates rise, they are suddenly going to be shocked by an enormous amount of money they can no longer spend on anything else other than paying back whoever lent them the money, which is often the central bank itself. And when you add all of this up, here's the conundrum, the problem. In order to fight the inflation, which you have to do if you're a politician, because it threatens you, it certainly, as the polls show, is threatening Mr. Biden, in order to get rid of the inflation, you jack up the interest rates and thereby plunge everybody into the morass of trying to figure out how to pay for the enormous debts you ran up. If you recall that we reduced interest rates in order to cope with the crashes of 2000, 2008, and last year, then you see again that this is a system in such deep trouble that everything it does to solve one problem immediately provokes the next one. And usually, if you're smart, you begin to understand, as my book tries to say, the system is the problem, not this or that contradiction or dilemma that confronts it. So how might this play out? Let's say that the uh, European Central Bank, the Chinese Central Bank, the Japanese Central Bank, and the Fed, our central bank, all get together and decide collaboratively, you know, inflation worldwide, uh, and, and so far it looks like it might be a blip, but, you know, all get together and decide inflation worldwide is a, is a problem that we have to do something about. The, the main tool, uh, the main, you know, monetary policy tool that we've got to do this is by is raising interest rates and we're and we're going to raise worldwide interest rates by say you know just just a couple hundred basis points you know three tenths of a percent five tenths of a percent something like you know 500 basis points not a lot but enough that now suddenly a lot of governments can't start repaying can't repay debts they're they can't even conduct normal business any longer because they're having to reallocate money that they would have spent on housing or food or, or even their military, now they've got to reallocate that to paying back debt. And you've got corporations around the world that are massively in debt. Um, you've got billionaires who are living off, off borrowed money. Uh, you know, I mean, what, how, how does it play out? What, what happens? What, how does this affect the average person? First of all, what would we see on our TV screens? What, you know, how, how does the world start 
crumbling. And then directly, what impact does that have on somebody who's got, you know, some money in a retirement account or some, you know, a checking account or somebody who's in debt? Does it help them or hurt them? Well, you know, it's complicated, as these things always are. Some of this you're already seeing. First, everyone has to remember that debts are different. One company compared to another, even in the same industry, will have decided to borrow more relative to others. Companies with executives who wanted to pad their payroll uh, for themselves uh, went into heavier debt than in other companies where CEOs weren't quite so free to act. So it impacts very differently. And you can see that already because some things have gone up in price very dramatically, food of certain kinds, but not others. Rental cars, fees have gone crazy, but not other kinds of rental. So it's very variable. And how you will be personally affected depends on how all these varying impacts play out in your particular uh, life. Then there's the question of getting everybody together. You said that very casually as if that's easy. It isn't. Tom, because different countries have very different rates of inflation. Europe's inflation is much lower than the one we are now experiencing. And our politicians are going to be in no great rush to do something scary and dangerous like raise interest rates when they're not feeling the pressure of an inflation the way Mr. Biden is. And the same goes for the Chinese, the Japanese, the British, or uh, or anybody else. But the general answer to your question is this. Inflations hurt everybody who can't make sure that their own income is helping them get through it. And here's what that means. If you're a corporation, one of the things you can do when you face an inflation rising prices for what you buy is to jack up the price of what you get. In other words, raise your own prices, which is one of the ways that inflations feed on themselves. Once they get going, everybody tries to cope with them by raising their prices. This is easy for an employer usually to do, or at least easier than for a worker who is stuck with a contract, for example, that runs another couple of years. Typical contracts in unionized places in this country run three years. So you can't do anything about your wage to keep up with what's going on with prices until you don't have a contract. And if you don't have any contract, you're not in a unionized place, which most workers aren't, well, then your employer is able to threaten you. If you demand a wage higher uh, than you have, have been getting in order to cope with inflation the employer will replace you with a machine will have a greater incentive to leave the country where wage to go to where wages are not rising or at least are much lower thereby accelerating all of that kind of problem so i mean i could go on and on but it depends on each individual situation where you work what kinds of goods you buy more than your neighbor does uh, how this will impact you but the biggest danger is If you look at the averages in the United States, the uh, prices are going up faster than wages, which should surprise nobody, since Americans are already unable to live on average on their wage income. This situation will either mean they borrow more, which only makes the problem worse, 
or they suffer a falling standard of living, which is quite something to dump on an American working class that has come through three crashes in the last 20 years, worsening inequality every single year, and the worst pandemic uh, together with crisis of the last two years. I mean, to say you've gone through all of that here, let's give you a declining standard of living because prices are going up than wages, you're going to have real trouble in the streets of the United States. And I think the, the statistics about the number of workers quitting or the statistics about rising strikes and the polling numbers indicating young people particularly are taking a new and much more positive look at the labor movement and unionization, those are all signs that the governments facing an inflation are desperate uh, to do something and will turn to the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates. But one last point. A couple of years ago, I think it was 2018, the Federal Reserve tried, for many of the same reasons, to play around with raising interest rates. I believe it was the autumn of 2018. It's not exactly in my head right now. The stock market immediately took a tremendous dive. And since nowadays the major donors to political campaigns are the people who own the stocks, that got stopped real quickly. And we're back at that same place now. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an absolutely fascinating dynamic. Professor Richard Wolf, democracyatwork.info, Prof Wolf on Twitter. Professor Wolf, thank you. Thank you again for dropping by. My pleasure. Thank you, Tom. My pleasure. Tim in Aloha, Oregon. Hey, Tim, what's on your mind today? Thanks for watching us on Free Speech. Yeah, Tom, you know, there's a million things I could say because I've been watching your program as, as I proceeded with, you know, with your, your topics and stuff. But and you were shaking your head about how not enough good news gets into the, into the media. Mm-hmm. The reason for that is that misery sells. That, yeah. I was in sales and marketing for 35 years. Demographics and market share are the, the, the key items that, that control this planet, basically. And if, for example, if Rachel Maddow came on one evening and said, uh, women's reproductive rights, the environment, uh, civil rights, consumer rights are all in order, things are working out, and said, I'll see you tomorrow, that'd be it, as opposed to saying, tune in at 6, and, and tomorrow I'll tell you how you're all going to die. You see what I mean? Oh, it's yeah. scary no. stuff. No, it's the old it's saying was, if it bleeds, it leads. Right, you know, and then the, the things that are growing in this country are, are uh, repossession, collection agencies, and pawn shops. It's getting mm-hmm. scary. Yeah, One and dollar stores. Sold his pawn shop. Yeah, one of my uh, neighbors sold his pawn shop, and now he travels the country collecting more money than he knows what to do with, helping people take uh, the last dime people have. You see what I mean? It's scary uh, stuff. Yeah. You know, and then he brags about it. Yeah. You know, and you've got over 10 million people now or 90 days late in their car payments. I was in the auto industry for 20, 20 years, you know. Those people, what if they lose their car and they can't go to work? You know, right. Yeah. Is, no. It's a it's, it's a tough time, and we're and we're we're. I, I, my sense is that we're on the precipice of something. I I don't know exactly what it is or how it's going to play out, but um, it, you know, forty years of neoliberalism has just kneecapped this country and our economy. Tim, thank you for the call. Thank you very much, Norma in Montgomery. Hey, Norma, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Hey. As usual, lots. What I want is everybody while you're sitting around with your family. Please start talking to them about the benefits of Build Back Better. If we can get people to understand that this plan would provide child care. I spoke to a woman this morning, a service provider, 
that pays $800 a month for her five-year-old and two-year-old. How much do you think this young black lady makes in the state of Alabama? I don't know. Okay, so if we can get people to understand, you know, I talked last week about how much my neighbor paid over four years, almost $400,000 in long-term care, 24-7, to take care of his father. Luckily, their mother came from an extremely wealthy family, and they could afford it. Most of us can't pay $12 an hour for 24 hours, $288 a day. But if we could sit down and talk to, to our family and friends about what this plan would do for us, and not talk about it being Republican or Democratic, mm-hmm. but talk about what it means to the American people, then we might get somewhere. But you can't just, um, excuse me, I was in the closet. <laughs> I'm out of breath. Okay. Um, but if we can sit down and talk to people about this, because, you know, like here in Alabama, for those who don't know it, there is a meeting on December the 14th at 9 a.m. in the RSA building to raise rates for Alabama power. Mm. Most people don't know. We yeah. need to get the word out and teach people. I'm with you. Yeah. And, you know, if you do it in a way that's a little less partisan. Norma, thank you. Thank you for the uh, reminder. That's great. You too, Tom. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. On the line with us is uh, Tim Hogan. Tim is the, uh, the, the he's a formerly a, a Democratic strategist with Amy Klobuchar, but he is the newly minted executive editor of a new uh, digital newsroom, Heartland Signal. And the website is heartlandsignal.com. And uh, it's uh, in part sponsored by WCPT, our Chicago affiliate, and the people behind that. Tim, tell us about uh, Heartland Signal. Hey, Tom, it's, it's great to be on. So we launched Heartland Signal last week. Uh, it is a place where you can go to get all your news about the midterms in 2022 with a focus on what's happening in the Midwest. 
And what we're doing here is we're filling a gap that has been left behind by newsrooms cutting resources, losing local reporters that for the longest time we've seen conservatives over decades do honestly a very good job of building media infrastructure. And so what we're doing is providing a little bit of surge capacity and covering stories that fall through the cracks in that region. And I'd point to two things as an example right now. Number one on our page, uh, heartlandsignal.com, our featured story is about Ashley Hinson, who's a Republican congresswoman from Iowa's 1st Congressional District. She was on the floor, voted against the reconciliation legislation that included funding for child care. And then she turned around five hours later, held a virtual roundtable with constituents in her district about the need to fund child care. <laughs> and that's something <laughs> that's something we didn't see covered anywhere else. And we thought it was a little uh, suspicious. So yeah. uh, we sent a reporter to, to cover that story. That's amazing. Uh, we're talking with Tim Hogan, uh, who is uh, formerly worked with Amy Klobuchar and was a Democratic strategist, the newly minted executive editor of this brand new website that you need to check out. It's called Heartland, or it's the, the URL is heartlandsignal.com. And uh, it's, it's just remarkable. Um, Tim, what, what can people expect there as they're going for, you know, if somebody puts that in a pinned tab and checks it every day, how often are you updating it? What are your plans for this website going forward? Yeah, well, we're, we're going to update it every day. We have reporters dedicated to uh, digging through news of the day and what's not being covered. I would also say you should find us on Twitter. You should follow us on Twitter. It's simply at heartlandsignal.com. And one thing we put out there yesterday that was not getting coverage in, you know, now we have nearly 200,000 views of this video that's being shared. J.D. Vance, who is a Senate candidate in Ohio, was on Newsmax yesterday talking about Kyle Rittenhouse. And he said that we should be promoting the types of virtues that exist in Kyle Rittenhouse because he, quote, made good decisions and, quote, decided to be a positive force in his community. And it's looking through that type of media that we're not seeing covered uh, in, in uh, right on, on uh, mainstream press. But people should know that, you know, the, independent of how the, the trial turned out, that the right wing is really propping up Kyle Rittenhouse. And a lot of their candidates uh, are, are rushing to his aid as well. You know, he was uh, at Mar-a-Lago with former President Trump. But uh, those are the types of things that we're going to cover. And I would just give a sneak peek of what we're going to be looking at. A list of all of the moments when House Republicans have claimed credit for projects in their district from either the American Rescue Plan or funding that's coming from the infrastructure bill that they, uh, they voted against. So they're very thankful for the Democrats for passing this legislation and, and helping them get that money. Yeah. And J.D. Vance, wasn't he a hedge fund millionaire? He, he, he had something to do with Wall Street that made him richer than sin. And then, you know, he wrote Hillbilly Elegy that was like, and suddenly everybody was like, oh, gee, you know, the hillbillies are really an oppressed bunch. And, you know, and it's like, what? Yeah, J.D. Vance seems to be going through a constant identity crisis. He's a big tech guy who now hates big tech, and his, his campaign oh, is his backed tech. by Peter Thiel. Uh -huh. Yes, and, you know, also a guy, right, who wrote Hillbilly Elegy and who in 2016 tweeted pretty frequently about how he really didn't like Donald Trump, and now he's trying to do an about-face because, you know, he's running against 
Josh Mandel, who is very Trumpy, and he's yeah. in a re Republican primary. So he's, well, and, he's and, changing his tune. Yeah, Josh Mandel is the uh, cousin of, of Ellen Ratner, who used to do the news on our show, you know, every day, five days a week for oh, years. Wow. An old and dear friend of mine. And uh, she describes him as, uh, you know, crazy cousin Josh. I mean, uh, do you... I'm guessing that Vance is going to beat Mandel, but that he probably isn't going to prevail in that election. What, what's your sense of that? I mean, that's the next, well, it's, I guess, two states over from you, but this yeah. is just Ohio. It's right there in the Midwest. Right. No, it'll be very interesting. You know, I think a lot of the people who are getting coverage in that race because they complete, continue to say incendiary things are J.D. Vance and Josh Mandel. I would say Jane Timken is someone that we're watching as well, though. She's the former chair of the Ohio Republican Party mm -hmm. um, and is not as out there as both of them. She has a bunch of baggage as well, including being tied to some outsourcing of jobs from the state. But that primary is going to be very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and and around the country, are there any other races that you think we should really be flagging, watching? Well, we are in a region where our signal from WCPT it reaches eight of the ten largest cities in Wisconsin. So we're focused on a lot of the, the big marquee races there, which includes uh, you know Ron Johnson, who has not said that he's going to run, but is really hinting at it. We'll be watching that state as well. Yeah, Ron Johnson. Talk about a character. Okay, the website is heartlandsignal.com. Well, it's also the Twitter handle at heartlandsignal. You got to check it out. Tim Hogan is the uh, executive editor over Heartland Signal. Check it out. Tim, thanks a lot for dropping by today. Great talking with you. Good luck. Thanks, Tom. Yeah. Pam in Chicago. Hey, Pam, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I wanted to say that the millionaires and billionaires, they rather give charity than just pay their fair share of taxes, Tom. Exactly. Or bring all of that money abroad, right? Remember, Trump promised all of the money that was going to come flowing in from those offshore accounts, right? Mm-hmm. That that never happened. So it just seems to me that um, when you, for example, Bezos, I think, gave $100 million um, to the guy at CNN. I forget his name. And um, But it just seems to me it would be more equitable if the CEOs of this country would pay their fair share. I'm with you. $100 million is chump change for Jeff Bezos. Thank you, Tom. So I didn't get excited about that. However... I do know, Tom, that the CEOs and the corporations, we've seen how they behaved in this pandemic, and it's been just despicable because they could have influenced Trump to do more, to tell the truth, and to shut the company down for that first three-month period so that we could uh, recoup and, and then rebound. Yeah, so, and, and they've made an additional $4 trillion in the last two years. I mean, it's mind-boggling. Thank you. I mean, Tom, how much money do you need? I mean, yep. just the greediness of it. Uh, you said good news, Tom. Here in Chicago, our Mayor Lori Lightfoot, and I, I disagree with her on many things, but she has implemented a $30 million pilot program mm -hmm. for uh, universal income. And what's going to happen is 500 families, um, excuse me, 5,000 families will receive a monthly $500. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we That's reported on that a, a while ago. I, oh, I, I think okay. it's, I'm really looking forward to seeing how this works out. You know, I, the, 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 by the way, we've been doing this in a lot, you know, here in the United States, the state of Alaska has been doing this since the 1950s. And there's no reason, really, we can't have it, uh, this country do that, yeah. right? Yeah, it's I mean, they're just taking the money from the, the yeah, they're, they're taking tax money from the oil revenue 
and you know they charge a, a, a fee for the oil that's pumped out and 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 every year everybody in Alaska literally man woman child doesn't matter you know uh, gets it you know between a thousand and three or four thousand dollars every year and and in fact when Sarah Palin was running for vice president she jacked it up to the point where I think just her family made something like 40 grand you know in that in that annual payment because she's mean, got a big family. Unbelievable. But, Tom, if I may leave you with two questions, please. Mm. Can you recall, uh, because I remember how many times the Republicans tried to um, repeal Obamacare. I cannot recall the Democratic Party, at least in my recent memory, trying to recall any of the uh, just draconian legislation created by the Republicans. That's my first question. Can you recall any of that? And then uh, also regarding voting rights. Joe Madison, I thank him. Tom, if we don't get voting rights, uh, federal voting rights, and I don't know what's the holdup with Biden, if, if you could possibly talk about why would he be reluctant to push on that, particularly now? I don't think he is. I think, I think he wanted to get his economic legacy set. And, and the theory was that if he could pass the, the two big economic bills, that would give him enough political capital, enough wind at his back, that what's frankly a bigger lift because this is the the core of the republican strategy going forward is voter suppression that would give him carve out something in the syllabus that's correct even if that has to be done that's correct that 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 getting it wasn't that he said the economic agenda is more important than voting rights it's that he said if i pass the economic agenda first i'm going to have considerably more political power that i can use for voting rights whereas if i pass voting rights first that's going to be a bloody battle and my political power will be diminished and we'll never get around to the economic agenda and there are some great things in this Build Back Better, and oh, yeah. I'm trying to get that message out as well. But ch- child care, then the tax credit, that's huge. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of really, really good life. stuff. It's life-changing, yeah. yes. Amen. Pam, thanks a lot. Thanks so much for the thank call. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, Pam. Bart in Benicia, California. Hey, Bart, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, just uh, calling in to ask a couple questions, get your opinion. One is, should we change the name of our group from progressive Democrats to just Democrats? What's your thoughts on name changes and the word progressive? Yeah, I've been saying for a long time that what progressives need to do is take over the Democratic Party. And and then the Democratic Party becomes itself an instrument of progressivism, just like the fascists have taken over the Republican Party. And you know, it used to be the fascists were the outliers. Now they are the mainstream. And, uh, you know, I, I think that we need progressives to be the mainstream of the Democratic Party. And, and by the way, that's happening. It's happening all over the country, which is a good trend. We just need to be, uh, you know, enthusiastically amplifying it. Right. Does the, does the name progressive in the I mean, the, the thought is that the name progressive now currently still has a bit of a stigma. So I don't think so. Democratic, just the, you know, I think it only has a stigma on the right. I, you know, I, I think that whole, you know, uh, Limbaugh yeah. making people afraid to call themselves liberals. And uh, and progressives, you know, I, I I think that era is gone, and uh, you know, and, and groups that are named, per, you know, like Progressive Democrats of America, PDAmerica.org, you know, they should they should hang on to that by all means. Okay, great. Thanks for that. Thanks for that uh, one-person poll. <laughs> yeah, that's all it is. Um, next next question. You know, you raise a lot of alarms, and actually, it's been it's. I listened to David Packman in different different shows, and, and I love your show, of course. Uh, the one thing that I find is that uh, it gives me gets my blood boiling. But then it's sort of like I have no way, no outlet except maybe write a letter, you know, send an email to a congressperson or whatever. 
you know, my, my feeling is we got to do more than that. It's just not, I don't think it's enough. I agree. So what can we do? What can we physically well, do? Well, apropos of the previous the question and answer, Bart, get inside your local Democratic Party. Okay, uh, which I have, which, I, which I'm which i getting you know, involved that's, that's, in. That's, that's the number one thing. I mean, be, can, become a precinct committee person, you know, uh, be, be one of the people who makes yeah. the rules. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what we need. We need progressives inside the Democratic Party in positions of local leadership. And that way you grow the party from the base up. I mean, here's this right. incredible opportunity. It's like, you know, if we were, if you and I were sitting around saying, hey, how do we take over MSNBC? Well, you need a couple billion dollars. How do you take over the Democratic Party, which is, by the way, a billion dollar corporation, right? It's a nonprofit, but it's a giant billion dollar corporation. How do you take it over? You just show up. It's like there's, there's, yep. there's no there. other opportunity this cool in America that I know of. Yeah, getting involved, which is which has been which is really which is one good outlet actually. Although right, I'm in a, and then and then and then pick, blue, so, yeah. pick whatever your favorite uh, issue is. You know, if you're passionate about climate change, join the Sunrise Movement or or you know one of the other movements that are you know the, the that are focused okay. on that. If you're passionate about voting rights, uh, you know, get get active with the ACLU and. Yeah, well, not not the the NAACP. I mean, there's some actually there are specific voting rights organizations. I'm sorry, you know, the names of them don't come right to the tip of my tongue, but there are, you know, well, uh, for example, Eric Holder has got this organization, and a quick Google and you can find the name of it. He's been on this program, and they're doing great work to fight gerrymandering and to, and to promote voting rights. Um, so, you know, and there's there's you know basically there's a group for every concern. Um, you've, you've got Progressive Democrats of America, you've got uh, Indivisible, you've got Our Revolution. There's, of course, the old standby of, uh, you know, moveon.org. I mean, there's just lots and lots of opportunities. Bart, thanks for the call and good luck. Good luck. Get out there, get active, tag your it, right? Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you, Dave, on, in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's on your mind today? Hey, not too much, Tom, and I'll try to be quick. Hey, I want to uh, thank you for your show on JFK. And I just want to say that, um, you know, I was looking at it from a systemic uh, point of view, and you mentioned a couple of times that you were afraid uh, that the JFK thing would trigger World War III. You were right to be afraid. Those systemic uh, problems have not gone away, and I would 
it's, I would tell you it's even worse. If you're really worried about World War III, it's even worse. Yeah. And as far as this information, this disinformation that's permeating America, I am 90% sure that is originating from advanced research sections, you know, like uh, Cozy Bear and all those others in Russia, primarily because, look, Vladimir Putin, I was wondering the connection between Putin and Trump. Vladimir Putin is a real patriot, okay? He has got, that doesn't mean he's an ultra-nationalist, but he is a patriot. He's got problems on the right and the left in Russia. Donald Trump treats him like a Moscow cab driver, and Vladimir Putin is exploiting that. We are so close to World War III with what's going on in the Baltic right now. I can tell you that I am almost certain that what's going to end up happening is the right-wing government in Poland and the right-wing government in Belarus are going to split the Ukraine with Russia's help, just like the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact in World War II. And remember, it was Poland last time. It was Poland then. This time it's going to be the Ukraine. They are going to get split. All right, And, And Russia is trying this. Valery Gerasimov is a general, okay? He's very smart. He's trying this hybrid model of warfare. This is the way the Chinese always operate in this hybrid model, what we would call hybrid model of warfare. This is new to Russia. 22 million Russians lost their lives fighting Nazi Germany. They know if it doesn't work, they're going to go with what they know. And what they know is to blow stuff up. I mean, you know, just total savage warfare. And the thing is, is, you know, I'm, I'm worried about this happening. And, and, and also China I, I don't know if you heard about all those uh, double agents China caught in like two days, like 200 of them. And they asked a CIA guy about this and he, on BBC. And they said, look, there's this rumor that China has hacked the network where you keep, where America keeps all this double agent information. Well, well long story short, that is like when we hacked um, uh, Enigma from the Nazis. That is huge. That yeah. is a huge thing. Yeah. And, and and if China has that, yes, and if they have, you know, of course the CIA guy denied it. But if that is true, that puts Russia in a very backwards looking position. You see what I'm saying? Well, China, did you see just a couple of weeks ally. ago that, you know, China and Russia uh, were were joining together on, I, I forget exactly what it was they were doing, but it was, I, I believe it was some sort of joint defense exercise, wasn't it? Yes, and, 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 and don't get, all right, look, what I'm saying is the pressure, they are allies, all right, but I don't want to sound like I'm talking out both sides of my mouth. But China, if they have cracked a code that Russia has never even come close to, that puts them in a, in a subordinate position, you see. Mm-hmm. That put, and I think that is accelerating this animus. Look, Joe Biden even said that in France, Right now, uh, gas prices are seven dollars a gallon. Well, they've been, always had they've been in that neighborhood forever, Dave. I mean, you know, gas gas in Europe costs two to three times what it does here in the U.S. because of taxes. But France has always maintained a special forces, like a very robust special forces presence in North yeah. Africa. This whole time, Russia has been antagonizing them in North Africa. Look, yeah. I mean, I'm worried Dave, about. Dave, this. I'm sorry, I got to run, but I, I agree. Okay. These are dangerous times. Thank you so much for the call. Back with more of your calls and the news of the day right after this. By the way, unemployment, a 50-year low. That Biden administration is really doing great stuff.
Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Unemployment to the lowest it's been in 50 years. And the Biden administration put a $100 fine on every container stuck in the ports. And guess what? The ports aren't stuck anymore. That's amazing how that works, right? Oh, man. But, you, you know, you won't really hear much about that in the media because that's just good news. And good news when you have a Democratic administration and, you know, you just... That, that just doesn't happen. So, anyhow, picking up your phone calls, Russ in Hickory Hill, Illinois. Hey, Russ, what's on your mind today? Uh, thanks for taking my call, Tom. Sure. It might be a wasted call, but well, how come the, when we were done, you got to tell me how much Zorro's worth. How come the billionaires ain't pounding about $10 billion into the Asian radio market? Every time I turn on the TV, they're number two right behind the Hispanics in Texas. Second fastest growing in Virginia, Georgia, Southwest, California, and you name it, Tom. They are growing like ragweed. How come we ain't getting in the, and, you know, all these billionaires trolling about $10 billion in the radio stations to smooth them to vote for us? Because I'll tell you what, in Texas, we went from 61 to 58%. This idiot. You're talking white uh, people? Trump went. Well, no, no. The Hispanics, we dropped from 61 to 58 in the last election. Trump went from 34 to 40 because of, like you say, they're pounding that market. How come we ain't pounding the Asian market? They're the second fastest growing. Time. You know, I, I know very little about this, Russ. I, first of all, Asian is a I huge think, category. I, I mean, you've got people who speak Japanese. You've got people who speak Korean. You've got you have people who speak yeah, Chinese. Uh, you know, so uh, number one. And number two, I, I just, I, you know, I just don't know about those numbers. But I think that, you know, starting with the Hispanic market in the United States would be a good a good idea. Uh, and I have no idea what George Soros is worth. Russ, thanks for the call. Barbara in Seattle. Hey, Barbara, what's on your mind today? Hi, thank you. Um, I have a question. Of the uh, DOD defense budget, you know, what percentage is spent on private contractors? That's a damn good I've question. To, I've tried to look it up, and I don't get a lot of results. And no, it's, it's impossible anyway. to find. It's, I, you know, I went, I went off on a search for that very question, um, geez, about a month and a half ago when I was, uh, actually it was more like four or five months ago when I was working on my book, The Hidden History of Big Brother, that'll be out next year. And, and I was looking for, you know, given that, you know, for example, Snowden, he worked for a private intelligence company that was contracting mm -hmm. with the NSA. He didn't work for the NSA, he worked for a contractor. Um, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, they were hiring people to be cooks for $100,000 a year. And then when bases get overrun, the soldiers had to protect the cooks as well as everybody else. Whereas, you know, it used to be the cook was a GI who could just pick up his rifle and, and you know, go, you know, march right into the fight, uh, you know, if the base was overrun. And I mean, it's just, it's crazy, Barbara. And I was unable to find any kind of breakout at all. The Defense Department's uh, budget is m hugely opaque as is the DOD itself. And, and of course, it's never been successfully audited. So, you know, we just, oh. we just don't know. They're, they're, to the best of my knowledge, and you know, if anybody does know, give us a call and let us know or, you know, tweet <laughs> me or something. But I, I looked for this for, man, the better part of a, of a day and a half. I mean, I put, I put a serious time into this and could not find anything that, that uh, you know, although it's substantial, it is really substantial. I mean, there there are some people who are guesstimating that it could be up to half of the of the uh, of a major portion of the defense budget. 
So, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars certainly is going into the contractors, and it's just, it's not right. It's absolutely not right. Barbara, thank you for the call. Great question. Uh, Dennis in Bridge, uh, excuse me, Bergenfield, New Jersey. Hey, Dennis, what's up? Hey, Tom, I have a question about the billionaires. I hear a lot of people justifying how they're billionaires because they give a lot of money to charity and they pay low taxes, but it's okay because they're giving charity. What, what would be your response to that? And do they get a tax deduction for paying for giving to charity? Does it really just benefit them themselves? Yeah, if you if you uh, itemize on your taxes, you can get a deduction for charitable contributions. I don't know exactly what percentage it is, how large it is, what the limits on it are, but it's there. And and there are much more sophisticated ways to do that with things like private foundations and stuff that the morbidly rich use all the time. Um, it, it, the 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 larger question, though, Dennis, that you raise is the one of you know what are the appropriate what is the appropriate realm for government when it has to do with the welfare the general welfare of the people and what is the appropriate role of private charity and i would submit to you that when we're talking about core human needs health care housing food um, education that these are all the responsibilities of government these are the, these are the reasons why we create government to protect ourselves in these regards in these in these core human needs and then private charity kind of fills in the edges you know private charity can can accommodate religion or art or uh, you know great literature or uh, you know help improve maybe education or things like that but in the United States we've had this battle between conservatives and Americans for years and years where the conservatives have taken the position that you know, no, government shouldn't be doing these things. You should just rely on the billionaires for all these things. Libraries, museums, everything else. It should all be privatized. And, you know, I strongly disagree with that. I think that government should be providing these base functions like they do, like government does in every other developed democracy in the world. You don't have student debt in Canada or in Europe. You don't have medical bankruptcies in Canada or in Europe. You, you have a fraction of the level of homelessness in those countries you don't have many of the problems that we have in the United States. You know, conservatives, particularly right-wing billionaires, don't want to be taxed to pay for this. And so they, you know, they throw the dog of a bone, you know, they'll, they'll, oh yeah, we're, we're going to help out. But I mean, for example, I saw an ad on TV the other day for uh, Danny Thomas's St. Jude's Hospital. And I'm like, you know, this is a wonderful thing. And when Danny Thomas did this, there was basically no, you know, health infrastructure for America. It was just a wonderful thing back in the 1950s and 60s. But Today, we should not have hospitals treating children with cancer with private contributions. This should be a function of our government. Why do we, ha you know, why is anybody having to make contributions to a private charity to care for children with cancer? You know, we're the, literally the only country in the developed world that has that kind of a situation. So, uh, Dennis, thank you, but uh, that, you know, that, that's my rant on that. John in Center Ospie, New Hampshire. Hey, John, what's on your mind? You know, just something that's just been battling in my mind back and forth. And I don't know. I mean, just the whole deal with the you know, voting rights back and forth. And now they're fighting the gerrymandering. You, you mentioned Eric Holder uh, fighting that battle. Right. Do you truly believe there's enough time from now between the, you know, the next election for that to happen? Well, my concern is that every day that goes by, that Congress does not pass one of one of these voting rights laws that would restrict gerrymandering, you get another state that succeeds in in completing a massive gerrymander 
that throws another two or three, you know, seats, in some cases even four or five, uh, to the Republicans in the House of Representatives, making it uh, anywhere from difficult to impossible for the Democrats to to hang on to their majority in the House right now. And, yeah. and uh, I mean, this is all structural stuff. The Republicans are masters at it. They've been doing it for years and years. And the only reason that they haven't been stopped, and, and frankly, we should have passed these laws before Texas finalized their maps. But the only reason we haven't is because, you know, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema have been saying, no, we can't fiddle with the filibuster. You know, the billionaires who are helping us out like that filibuster. John, thank you for the call. And now we have my colleague Joe Madison, you know, on a hunger strike over this, literally taking his life in his hands to try to highlight this issue. We all need to be talking about it. in Aptos, California. Hey, Dennis, what's on your mind? Well, you know, I was going to talk about uh, all the trolls on YouTube, but uh, I, I want to talk about what the other Dennis was just saying now, because uh, it's something that's hit me. I get, because I've given money to various organizations, I get deluged with organizations asking me to give money. Yeah, me too. And, you know, it, it, it comes in the mail, which, you know, you can imagine, I mean, how the mail gets stuffed up with all these. And, and, you know, they're great organizations, many of them. I think some of them might not be. They just are probably trying to grift, uh, like maybe the World Wildlife Fund. I've heard some very negative things about them. But, you know, I get a little bit sick of it. And I, and I think the same thing. Why, why do we have government? I mean, this is what Franklin Roosevelt did back in the 1930s. He used government to help the United States of America get out of a deep depression, basically caused by trickle-down economics that Andrew Mellon invented in 1921. Yes, absolutely, as, uh, yeah, as the uh, Treasury Secretary for Warren Harding, as I recall. Yes. Yeah. And You're right. It was he was Harding. Yeah, and and Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover all took the position, and they all continued to. Well, Harding was dead by then, but you know they, they all continued to take this position. When the Great Depression happened, you know, in 1929, the Republican Great Depression, the Great Crash, that these problems should be solved by private charity. That's the province. Of, you know, and and John Rockefeller in the 1920s or the 19 teens out there in New York City, passing out shiny new dimes as his PR guy was, you know, calling up the New York Times. Yeah, it's, it, it's time for government to step up in the United States. I'm with you, Dennis. Thank you very much. Teresa in Bellevue, Washington. Hey, Teresa, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Hey, I was thinking back to your conversation about government versus charity for the services. Mm -hmm. And it brought to mind, Cornell West has a saying, he says, charity is not justice. And I got to thinking about that, like, okay, what does that mean? And I sort of figured out in my own mind it means that, you know, charity is like you get a meal because I'm feeling generous. That's charity. Right. Justice is you get a meal because you're a human being and that's your right. Correct. That's a brilliant analysis, Teresa. It's yeah. Perfect. Isn't that a great way to think about it? And yeah. uh, pithy little saying you can bring out. <laughs> there you go. Teresa, thank you so much for that. That, that, was, that was perfect. Okay. That was perfect. Morris in Long Beach, California. Hey, Morris, what's up? 
Well, brother, I hope we got some time. Look here, I was listening to your conversation with Lamar Walton uh, regarding the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and it brought back a few books that I had read over my lifetime. One of them was called Special Operations and Their Impact on the Vietnam War by David Ratcliffe. Mm -hmm. Did you know that before the president was assassinated that the story was out halfway around the world? Okay. Uh, this, there's another book by David Talbot. It's called The Devil's Chessboard, Alan Dulles, the CIA, and the yeah, right of America. I was hoping when you, now, you didn't mention Alan, that we're not sent, it wasn't nothing wrong, but I didn't hear Alan Dulles' name until you read, the next day you were reading from a book called uh, uh, Nuking the Moon or something like mm -hmm. that. Then you mentioned Alan Dulles' name. But with your, your conversation with Lamar Walden, I was waiting to hear from it, uh, hear his name, but, but I didn't hear it. But, and you know, darn well he had an impact on this assassination of the president, and also that Harry S. Truman. He regretted the CIA was started under his administration. Well, Harry it was the OSS before that, but yeah. But he regretted the establishment of that, okay? And, and he wrote an op-ed, I guess I think that's what you call it, saying we shouldn't have done that. And your boy Alan Dulles went down to visit him and saying, you know, retract all of that. Uh, and then there was another book that came to mind. It was called Harvest of Empire by Juan Gonzalez, where you talk about the, the Sullivan Law Firm and Conchita mm -hmm. Banana. What I'm trying to say is all of that, I believe, all of that, I believe, that spirit, was it was interrelated to the assassination of the president and i think at the end of the day it was all about some money professor that's just my own personal opinion but yeah. uh, i just wanted to say that and thank you for giving me this time to make that comment you're welcome morris abby in lacrosse yeah lacrosse wisconsin hey abby what's up hi tom how are you doing i'm uh, well i wanted to follow up wanted to follow up on a call that you had last Thursday from a guy who brought up the issue of gas rationing. Mm -hmm. I kept screaming at this guy to get out of my head because it's a thing I've been thinking about for years. And you were a little bit dismissive of him, but let me try to flesh this out a little bit. Okay. I like to call it personal cap and trade. And the big thing here is, and, and I'm a few years younger than you are, but I'm old enough to remember the gas crunches in the late 70s and early 80s. And I used to say to myself, you know, people were saying, well, the free market should dictate the price of gas, and then people will use less gas. And I thought, that's not fair to poor people who depend on their cars to get to work and back. Yeah. You know, so I, and I said at the time, I'd rather see gas rationing than $3 a gallon gas. And this was at a time that gas wasn't quite a dollar a gallon yet. Right. And somebody wrote an article in the LA Times, and I can't remember who the guy's name was, but this, you know, this was years ago, and suggested a gray market for gas rationing, in which everybody gets an equal quota, everybody gets an equal number of gas coupons, but instead of the World War II scenario where they were not transferable, this time they are transferable. And if you don't use any gas, you can sell your gas coupons to somebody that really needs that gas for their SUV. And <laughs> what it would do to trigger behavior and it's sort of a market-based solution because instead of the market for the price of gas it's the market for the right to buy gas so if you're a poor person that never uses any gas you can make money on your coupons the less gas you buy the more money you make on your coupons and it's an immediate behavior motivator and demotivator. If you use a lot of gas, you're going to start looking for ways to buy less gas because you have to buy a lot of coupons. You're spending all your money buying more coupons from other people. Um, so that's why I've, I've, I've... And I think this can be applied to a lot of of resources that are finite and gasoline and, and oil and the ability to absorb the pollution from the oil is a finite resource so that's why I, I, I kind of disagreed with your dismissiveness but I think the guy that presented the argument in the first, you know, he didn't bring out the, the gray market aspect of this where people would be free to buy and sell their coupons to each other right. and that would be a lot better 
better motivator than the system that you've been advocating where you know there's a price on carbon and everybody gets the same check at the end of the month people don't think about that check at the end of the month when they feel the immediate price at the pump but they do feel the money that they're that they're, I think they'll think about that check at the end of the month when they start getting it I mean uh, but but how how would people but, but are, are you suggesting that, that the federal government just like mail out 10 coupons to everybody in America and say here's some free gasoline and now start buying and selling the coupon? I, I, how, how would you do this? The, the coupons wouldn't be for the gas. The price of gas would be set at some level, but the coupons would be able to rise and rise and fall in price according to market conditions. And, I mean, the devil is in the details. And they give you the right you know, to buy the gas well, or they give you a discount on the gas? They give you a right to buy the gas. So this is so, like the way that we rationed butter back during World War II. I don't remember back that far, but, you know. I remember it, my dad and, telling yeah. me, my mom and dad telling me about <laughs> it, yeah. Um, huh, interesting. Yeah. Bobby, let me yeah. ponder it. Say, say, you know? say gas is a dollar a gallon, and if you run out of coupons, you're going to have to spend more than a dollar a gallon because you're going to have to buy coupons from somebody. Right, I get it. I get it. Bobby, maybe, maybe brilliant idea. I don't know. But thank you very much for the idea. Thanks for the call. There was a, a, just an absolutely great op-ed over on Daily Kos that I, I just wanted to flag for you. It's titled, CNN's feel-good stories are seriously starting to piss me off. And it's by Sendem, one of, the, one of the people who posts regularly over on Daily Kos. And they go through all these stories that CNN has been running. These Home Depot employees built a walker for a two-year-old boy. Another one, a teacher ran out of sick days to stay with his cancer-stricken daughter, so fellow educators chipped in with their sick days. Another, an eight-year-old boy paid off his lunch debt for the entire school by selling keychains. Are you starting to notice something common to these? People are pitching in to help out people who should have been helped by our society. That we, we, we as a society should not be in a situation where Home Depot employees need to pitch in to buy a walker or build a walker for a two-year-old boy who's got, you know, a, 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 I'm not sure if it's a birth defect or a disease, but hypertonia, um, that teachers shouldn't be running out of sick days when, they, when their daughters have cancer, uh, that eight-year-olds should not have to pay off the lunch debt for their, for their fellow eight-year-olds. Here's another one, CNN. A 13-year-old uses his make-a-wish to feed his city's homeless for a year. Well, why are we? Why do we have hungry homeless in the United States of America? Here's, a, you know, I mean, it's just, it's crazy, right? As the poster over on Daily Kos says, and I, I just want to, you know, agree with this sentiment and amplify it. None of these are heartwarming stories. They are sick. Please tell me how the wealthiest nation, this poster writes, how the wealthiest nation in the world allows children to starve or tells the mother of a sick child that it can't be bothered to pay for an effing $100 walker. So I'm supposed to be happy that a teacher had to choose between making a living and his dying child? Billionaires got 54% richer during the pandemic, getting an, in excess of $4 trillion 
why the hell is anyone begging for food or the minimum baseline of health care in the United States? Are we that morally bankrupt? Well, actually, yes, we are. They go on to say, is our plan to feed homeless vets really dependent on sick children giving up their charity wishes because our government can't be bothered? And then this, this, uh, this poster over on Daily Coast says, you know, I might have to live in this workplace dystopia, CNN, but don't effing tell me I should feel good about it. And, you know, it is such a, you know, to the point op-ed, and it is so true that here we have, you know, I look through GoFundMe, somebody I know, Posted a GoFundMe page a couple of a couple of weeks ago for for a medical procedure, and I'm scrolling through GoFundMe and it's like all this stuff that would not exist in Canada or in Europe or in Taiwan or in South Korea or in Japan, all these countries with you know free national healthcare systems, people begging for money to get an operation. It's wrong. Special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercote, Patrick White, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Sprouse, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabberwocky, Jay LeBlanc, Connor Arroyo, and Carne Verde. All the folks who work on this program. And thank you to you for uh, participating with our program and spreading the good word and supporting our sponsors and our stations. Get out there, get active, tag your it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 